Overreaction Theater, Bonafide or Bonifacio, our bold predictions, waiver wire picks, and more. FSWA Hall of Famer Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, I'm a little bit... My voice has not completely gotten better. We didn't have a show uh, last week because my voice was non-existent. It's like 85% there, so I apologize to everybody for not having the 100% punch my voice usually has, but otherwise I, I'm doing well. Ruvain, how, how's your first uh, week of watching scores and games going? Isn't it exciting? I feel like I feel like at the very beginning of the season, every game, every pitch you're watching, you're watching so closely, and I feel like you do that at the end of the season. Um, it, it, how do you feel? I don't know. It's 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 great getting to watch all this baseball. It's really good. Um, but this can also lead to people jumping to conclusions on players a little too soon because you're able to watch every single thing. You have to remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, we were in first place in the NFBC auction championship overall for like the first five days. So obviously you can't go by that, but better to see your name in in first than than in last. So Well, they, they should have just ended the season then. I don't know why they didn't. <laughs> there you go. All right, well, we've got a fantastic show today. We've got a fantastic guest. Uh, he was recently anointed as an FSWA Hall of Famer. I think he literally got his plaque today. Welcome to the show from Yahoo Sports, Scott Pianowski. Hey, guys. It's, uh, it's exciting to be here. I know we, we did a show, I think, last year, which was a lot of fun, and um, I'm looking forward to the next hour or so. Absolutely. All right, so... Uh, you know, first of all, uh, uh, how, how did your draft season go? Any regrets? Any great stuff? Uh, did you change your strategy from what you usually do in any particular way? Uh, how was your draft season? Yeah, yeah, I tweaked it a little bit. I was trying to skew a little bit younger. Um, when I first got into the fantasy industry, there was a thing that I used to talk about, the Raul Abanez All-Stars. I used to be the type of person who was a lot more open-minded, I think, sometimes to kind of the boring value vet players that can can be fantasy, you know, uh, bargains sometimes. And not that I've given up on that. You know, I mean, if you've been betting on Nelson Cruz all through his 30s and into his 40s, you've pretty much felt great about it just about every season. I know he tailed off at the end of last year. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of, the irony is I've kind of accepted this is maybe more of a fantasy football truism where you really need young players. And once guys get over 30, you get to run away from them, except for the quarterbacks because of the attrition of that sport and the shape of it. But I wanted to be more on ascending talents. I wanted to be more on players who haven't had their best season yet. Not that I wouldn't take a value veteran when he, when he made sense, but it was just in the back of my mind. I would like to be a little bit younger with my roster. And I also wanted to be a little bit more proactive with my frontline pitching. Not that I was going in with any mandate. I mean, I think we all know you want to have a general idea of your strategy, but it's written in pencil. You don't know what's going to happen in your draft or auction. There may be opportunities you didn't foresee that you want to take advantage of in the middle of it. But I think in some years I've just been like, okay, I trust this hitter. I don't trust this pitcher. I'll just keep bullying the hitting. 
And then I look up 10 or 12 rounds in, and I'm like, man, I'm a pitcher or two behind, and I don't even love the guys that I have. So this year, I wanted all of my teams to have somebody who I thought was one of the frontline Cy Young contenders. I didn't have to have the number one pitcher. I didn't have to have Garrett Cole or, or Max Scherzer or whoever, or um, you know, guys like that. But I wanted to have somebody who was a legitimate horse at the front of my staffs and maybe be a little bit more proactive with frontline pitching than I have been in recent seasons. It's interesting because I found that the very frontline pitching this year looked more risky than it had been in the last couple of years. Like I found myself going more towards the Joe Musgrove, uh, Logan Webb, Kevin Gaussman, that middle of the range more. Uh, we, we did end up with a couple of DeGrum shares when everything because we, we drafted when everything was looking great. So mm-hmm. we got some, I should say cheap, but still he's on your roster, uh, DeGrums. But very interesting. Uh, I, I, I sort of had not the exact same, not, not the opposite approach of you, but a little bit different pocket of, of value is what I thought. It's interesting because when you talk about guys like Musgrove and Gaussman, that two or three years ago, I would have said, okay, my goal is to let all the A plus and A minus you know, pitchers go and have a staff of B pluses, you know, all, all the like Kevin Gaussman types and all the Joe Musgrove types. And I was still open-minded to those guys. But I think I was also trying to see, could I get a Walker Bueller on, on my team? I, I know he's hurt now, but could I get a Lucas Giolito on my team? Um, you know, Maybe just a horse, and maybe I'd be lucky enough to have a team where Gaussman was my number two or Musgrove was my number two. I think those guys would be welcome on anybody's fantasy rosters. And again, I'm, I'm not going to beat everybody over the head with fantasy football comparisons, but it's such a clean comp that if you running backs are maddening in fantasy football and they get hurt a lot and they frustrate us, but if you have the best running backs in your fantasy league, your chances of winning go up significantly. And I feel like Sammy Reed made this comp many, many years ago. He had a Twitter thread that I thought was so good. I thought it was a deserving of an FSWA award on its own that basically starting pitching is what running backs are in fantasy football, that they drive us crazy and they get hurt and they're always tinkering. They're adding a pitch. They're scrapping a pitch. It's a new pitching coach. It's a new spot in the rubber. It's a new catcher they're working with. They're working from the stretch. They're working from the windup. You know, they're switching roles. You know, we, we have guys who can't pitch as starters. They become knockout relievers, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're, they drive us crazy. But if you solve the pitching, whether you fall into it or, you know, it's funny, the last few years, and you, you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned Alex Cobb. If you didn't, um, I wanted to mention him. It's funny how often you mentioned Gaussman, who, of course, turned his career around in San Francisco. And that's also, and, and I don't know if this is a mistake or not, but I just got accepted that I look at some of the coaches in San Francisco and I look at the defense. We know the park was a little bit more offensively friendly last year, but still a good place to pitch. I, I was also thinking, you know what? I want to come away. We always think of oh, what lineups do we want to invest on? I want Blue Jays on my team. or I want Dodgers on my team. or I, I want Red Sox on my team. They're going to score so many runs. I also went to my draft and thought, you know, they're doing something right in San Francisco. I want some Alex Cobb shares. I don't think I got anywhere near as enough as, as what I wanted, but I wanted some Cobb. I, I wanted some Alex Wood. Uh, that whole staff really looked good to me. Um, you know, Logan Webb um, looks terrific. I, I wanted to have a share of some of those guys as well. Yeah. We had Brian Bannister uh, from the uh, Giants on, on our show, and he sounded top-notch. They really do know what they're doing. He's so smart. Man, he was one of my favorites on the Royals, man. Yeah. Uh, he, he reminds me a lot of Brandon McCarthy, where it's like— Yes, yeah. I think his talent level was that he was a bona fide major leaguer, but maybe was never going to be a star. But you listen to him speak, and you're like, wow, this guy's going to be a great coach or a great you know organizational piece for somebody because he just understands the pitching craft so well. 
thousand percent. Um, Ruvain, we, we we have a lot of uh, Wheeler and Nola shares this year. And what what did you notice? Did you change any of your strategy uh, coming into this year uh, from previous years? Well, I don't think we changed any of our strategy really too much. But what I did notice is that we did a lot of our regular drafts, the the snake drafts, we did them prior to the lockout. And it seems like we did all our auctions after the lockout. And it seemed like it, everyone was living in the same neighborhood of players that we were. And we when we started noticing that, we started changing up our our technique and what we were doing during the course of the draft, we were going to say, you know what, let's pay the extra dollar or two to get this higher level guy because all the mid-level guys are going to be too expensive. We're going to be priced out of um, same goes for pitching. We wanted to spend that extra dollar. And it just so happens that the fell in our laps for, I think a bunch of teams just because we thought it was cheap. And if we can get him for half a season, that's still a half a season with the and the way he was pitching in spring training. If he can do that for even a core um, half a season, I think he's he's worth his value where we got him. And as for having Nola and as for having Wheeler, I was watching Nola pitch today. He didn't really look too good against the Mets. He he looked all over the place. But Wheeler looked Wheeler looked pretty good. He looks like he's over his shoulder issue. And I think having those two horses, just Scott, just like you said, having a couple of good horses in your on your on your roster who you can count on, who are actually dependable, they actually help you throughout the season. So you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to hopefully and hopefully they don't get hurt. Hopefully they'll carry you to the point where you can don't have to worry about your staff as much during the course of the season. Yeah. Um I would I will say though that uh and you know it's tough for anybody drafting anybody auctioning but you know I we have the ATC projections available to a lot of people out there and I know when when we're doing the like the NFBC auctions I mean everybody's sitting there with our numbers in hand. The guy next to us is like, "Well, I know who you're going to pick." Uh makes it a little bit tough and the game turns more for us at least from the who's the good players to what's the right prices to pay and what price points do you have to to play. And I find that winning auctions these days is knowing, okay, we got to spend the extra dollar here. We're going to get bargains here. It's just seeing how the first 10 players go in an auction, you got to be very sharp in knowing exactly where you think the bargain is going to be. Is it going to be in the second level, the fourth level? Is it the fourth outfielder, the first outfielder? Is it the middle infield, the corners? You just got to be sharp in knowing where it is because the game is more about finding pockets of value, even less than finding the players. Do you find that to be true, Scott? I love how, I love how you said that. And, and what I'm going to say is basically just paraphrasing what you said. I think the and I'm old enough. I mean, my fantasy experience, I, I started playing fantasy baseball in the late 80s. I really got into it in the 90s and then started doing it as a supplement to my income. And then ultimately it became my full-time vocation. And in the old days, you could just clobber people with information advantages. You're reading the USA Today. You're having a friend in a different city. I was early to the internet. Um, I would have maybe a friend who lived in Minnesota. He'd give me intel on the twins that my friends in New England didn't have, stuff like that. Um, of course, everybody in New England was reading Peter Gammons and trying to get nuggets from him. You know, we, we Boston Globe had a killer sports section in those days. Still has a great sports section. But now, just to your point, I think it's more how you play and how you leverage your marketplace is going to go a lot further than, okay, I outscouted everybody. I saw, and not that you can't do that. I mean, if you pick up on something and some people are, are better at it than others. I'm not going to claim to understand the ins and outs of pitching maybe as well as, you know, Saris does, you know, I'm not going to know maybe the, the Tampa Bay Rays as well as Jason Collette does. But so I'm not saying you Rob Silver knows the Blue Jays inside and out. And he's just, you know, these guys are all great, you know, f baseball minds and fantasy players anyway. But I think it's more important in how we play 
and not as important. You still have to scout the players, but I think in the old days you could win with an information and scouting edge. I think that's largely been mitigated and gone away. And it's more about how well do you understand the habits of your room and how well can you leverage what's available to you on draft day and during the season with your management. Yep, exactly. Agree 100%. And, you know, moving on to uh, the season itself, and, uh, you know, the Tau table uh, posed a question which uh, I think is worth repeating here. You know, what are some things in the early goings, we're in the first week, first seven days of the season, what are some things that you want to pick up on, right, Uh, in terms of pitchers, lineups, in terms of hitters? What are some things that you're paying attention to right now in the first week of the season? Yeah, it's a great question. Todd Zola does a great job of getting us all together and asking topical stuff, and then people can benefit from the different uh, answers and input that, that goes into that. I'm looking at roles, um, who, who's batting where, what new manager, what, what are some of his tendencies? Does he seem to favor a bullpen by committee? Is he open to a running game? Looking, Obviously, we're always looking at the pitchers. You have to be so fine-tuned with these guys of you know who's gained velocity who's lost velocity and can we put any stock in the guys who haven't gotten it back yet because maybe they just you know they have a dead arm period they haven't ramped up enough we know it was an abbreviated spring training after the you know the difficult lockout situation and also remember that there are certain stabilization periods for different stats walks and strikeouts stabilize pretty quickly and it's actually kind of fun when you look at some of the guys that we're all talking about off the first week a lot of these players, it's tied to their walk, walk and strikeout rates. You know, Tyler McGill has 11 strikeouts and no walks. You know, Stephen Kwan has this unbelievable contact rate and he's walking like crazy. Those stats are going to become believable and actionable very, very quickly if they aren't already. And and you know, the whole idea is people say, well, you, you don't want, look, we're not blowing up our teams right now, right? We're not going to say, oh, well, Bryce Harper, you know, went one for his last nine or something. I, I got to get rid of Bryce Harper. Nobody thinks like that. But there's always going to be moves we can make at the bottom of our rosters. And I'll tell you why. It kills me. I don't have Stephen Kwan anywhere because I believe in his contact rate. I believe in his profile. I don't think I was up enough on Kwan before the season. And even though he may not have a lot of category juice, I think this guy could hit 315 or 310. And he's going to probably slot first or second in that lineup all season. Not the greatest Cleveland Guardians lineup, of course. But I, I think he's a guy who I wish I was proactive on. But Again, walks and strikeouts are so important in fantasy baseball anyway, but those are stats that stabilize quickly, meaning that they can have significance a lot sooner than some of the other stats we might be measuring. So I'm always going to pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah, I agree with everything you said uh, thus far. Ruben, anything to add on what you're looking at? Yeah, I'd like to look at what the managers are doing, how they're utilizing, like you mentioned, the bullpen, but how do they utilize the guys that steal, whether they're very active with it, whether a third base coach is more active sending people. Like, I'm just watching the Met games, watching Alex Cora at third base, as a third base coach, he is super aggressive at sending runners, and you know what? The team may score more runs that way. You have to look whether or not, um, how long the pitchers are in the game, how long the pitchers are willing to be, you know, how their pitch count, whether they're at 60 pitches, 70 pitches, 80 pitches, because right now, their wins are very hard to get because starting pitchers are going four and a third, four and two thirds, and it's so frustrating right now. And you can't really take too much away from the, from that, especially if those starters normally go five, six, even sometimes seven innings. You can't take that much back. One other thing I want to uh, and just to have everyone in the back of their mind: there was this lockout. Is the baseball the 2019 baseball, or is it the 2021 baseball, or is it the 2020 baseball? What baseball are they using? Is the ball flying out? Because right now. 
I don't see that it's crazy, but it there is a lot. There has been, I mean, this past uh, second half of the week here, there's been a surge in home runs. There's been a lot of balls flying out, and it's not even warm yet. So that's something also to watch out for, that this the power numbers may be ballooning very soon. So that's, you know, this is the time to try to just pound the pitching and make sure, get the pitcher's stats in there as much as possible because home runs may go up. Yeah, it's tough to tell about the ball, you know, especially because pitchers, they're really t- towards what would have been the end of spring training. As you said, they're not going five innings. Um, look at Clayton Kershaw, had a perfect game after seven, and they pulled him. Oh, my goodness, today. I mean, that's something that you usually would not see if not for it's so early in the season. Kershaw is injury prone. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in terms of baseball, it's hard to tell. Uh, the pitching is going to be worse, right? Uh, we expect inflated numbers because of the short spring training. So it's a little bit too early to tell with the ball about that. But I agree with everything you said. I, I think I'm looking at managers for stolen base attempts. Like, I don't care if a guy is successful. I'm looking at which managers are running more than usual. Usually the stolen bases are not so much player. They're, they're more team-based. Is it team philosophy to run? Look at lineups. Who's batting before who? Who's batting ninth? What does the team think about a player if they're batting them ninth? or if they're batting them second, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, the bullpen usage is is, is telling. Uh, you can tell whether a manager is, uh, he's my lockdown guy, or, hey, it's closer by committee, or we don't even know. Uh, it's it, it's tough in, in some situations, but the usage is more important than the stats. And let me ask you a question, Scott. Um, you know, you have, in a very small sample size first week, you have some really, really good performances, and then you have some really bad performances. Do you value the really good performances more in terms of, okay, we have something here, got to watch it more? Do you totally shrug off bad performances and say it's just a week? Like, Does the hot hot players matter more to you than the cold players in general? Just one other thing I want to back up on is, yeah. is as far as the, the usage. Also, I mentioned this, wanted to mention this earlier. Uh, who's platooning and who isn't? Who's who's a full-time player? Who's a part-time player? Who's on the heavy side of the platoon? There are some teams that platoon more active than others. I mean, I always feel like the Rays aren't happy unless they have a different lineup every day. The Giants are a platoon-happy team. Some other teams are, no, we have full-time guys and our bench guys are our bench guys. Another thing I'm going to pay attention to. As far as hot starters and cold starters, it, it kind of ties into how I look at spring training. And I realize we just had a very unusual spring training. So the rules for this year were different, of course. But generally speaking, in spring training, the more established a player is, the less we care about whatever he's doing in Arizona or Florida. And when somebody's a newer player, his performance may matter because it may help him make the team. I mean, Julio Rodriguez, who is a wonderful prospect, had he hit had he hit 137 in spring training, he probably wouldn't have made the Mariners. It would have been very easy for them to send him back to AAA and, and shrug it off and say, okay, you know, we'll bring him up. We think he's ready. And, you know, play that, play the, uh, the, control game of course you know the rules have changed a little bit with with the with the rookie of the year voting stuff like that but as far as hot starts slow starts what i already thought of the player and how much how much of a made man he already is is going to play into this you know if max scherzer pitched okay today as we tape but if, if he had gotten bombed for six or seven runs as long as his fastball wasn't you know topping out in the 91 range or something i can shrug it off he's max scherzer but if, you know, a number four, number five starter who I thought was maybe a fringy type of pick, you know, if I'd mentioned Tyler McGill earlier, I mean, if he had gotten bombed in his first two starts, you know, we all would have been dropping Tyler McGill in mass wherever we had added him because he doesn't have a leash. He doesn't have the, uh, he hasn't earned the right to, to be held onto our rosters for a long period of time. So it really, how I view these things has a lot to do with 
what I thought of the player beforehand. And I don't want to radically change my opinions unless I see something that I think is actionable. And that's not going to be all that common. There are guys I have, I, I can tell you that, and then sometimes it's a player we didn't see, right? Like, like say a Suzuki, all we knew is his overseas stats. It's a different level of competition. You, you don't know how they're, life adjustment is going to go living in a different culture. You know, how well do they speak English? How comfortable are they in their city? I feel pretty confident after seeing this guy. And I know it's been a week and maybe people are going to shake their heads at me saying this. His Yahoo ADP, I think was around 150 or so. I think if you were walking into a Yahoo draft right now, I would value Suzuki as a top 50, top 60 player. Yeah. What, what a difference three days makes, right? Um, the other, the only thing I would caution, caution everyone about is, there's always something called regression. If somebody is overperforming, they're obviously going to regress down. If somebody is underperforming, they're going to regress up. With one caveat, in baseball, if you are overperforming, your team will tend to give you a longer leash. They'll let you play more. You have some guys who hit 400 the first month, but then they can be hitting 150 for the rest of the year, and you'll probably still see the team playing them on and on, and you might still be playing them on and on in your fantasy leagues because, wow, their cumulative numbers look fantastic. Uh, But regression has hit them, and they've earned the leash on your teams, on your fantasy teams, on real-life teams. On the opposite side, People who have underperformed, unless they're the veteran that has earned the right to play on teams, the short leash is going to be there, right? There's You're going to have players who probably will get less playing time. Maybe they'll be even sent to the minors. They won't have the time to regress upwards. So you're going to always see more regression on the hot than regression upwards on the cold only because the opportunities are going to be greater for the over the overperformers than the underperformers. Do you agree with that, Scott? No, that's a very uh, astute distinction to make, and I totally sign off on that. Well, then what do you do? What do you do with a situation like Kyle Hendricks? Opening day, he looked great. The other day, or I think it was today or the, or the day before, he got bombed. Do you keep him at a matchup only pitcher do you pitch them every week i mean the, the, this you're talking about people who are hot and cold but what if you have a very mixed bag like that like the extremes what do you do with that scott well that, that, by the way that's what he did last year in 2021 kyle hendricks he was hot and cold you know hendricks was a guy who we had a nice run i, I felt like i was always making at least par value on hendricks if not a of a an actual um, profit on him for years and then last year we know he doesn't have you know, jaw-dropping stuff. He, he doesn't make the radar gun pop. And I, I always feel like pitchers like Hendricks who need to be extremely fine with their location and with their pitch mix, that when that starts to, you know, hit, hit he's in, I mean, he's not a ridiculous age. He's into his age 32 season. But I always worry about pitchers like him that need to be very fine with, with things, with their ancillary things, because they can't just say, okay, here's my fastball. I'm going to throw it over the heart of the plate. You try to hit it. That's not Kyle Hendricks. He needs to be on the corners, and he needs to be really fine with a, with a lot of things. And I, I think last year just scared me off Kyle Hendricks. And then when he had that good first start, I, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I missed an opportunity here because I don't think he was expensive in my leagues. But then you know, he got hit pretty hard in his second turn. I, I feel confident he's not going to be part of my fantasy profile this year because I don't think he's the type of pitcher who generally ages well. I, again, he's only 32. It's not, I don't want to act like he's 40 or something. And, and actually, you know, I've talked myself into Adam Wainwright, who seemed like he's had a career renaissance. He is 40 years old. And he's 
actually a lot of the things I'm going to say about Hendricks, I can say about Wainwright. He's going to have a league, a below league average strikeout rate, and he's going to need his defense a lot. But I think I'm out on Kyle Hendricks after being proactive on him for probably three to five years. Yeah. I mean, Hendricks is a guy that has to have pinpoint control. And to me, it's day by day. If he has it on that day, it's going to be great. If he doesn't, he's going to give up quite a bit. Do you want that risk on your roster, on your team? I don't. Um, I will tell you two pitchers who I am concerned about that at any point they can blow up. Um, Noah Syndergaard. I found that in playing Noah Syndergaard on my fantasy teams over the last couple of years, he can be fantastic. And then all of a sudden, he'll have that one game where he blows up for six or seven earned runs, and that'll completely wipe out any ERA gains. For that reason, I don't want to roster Noah Syndergaard because, sure, he might get you a good outing or two, but you're going to want to play him, and he's going to run into those terrible outings. And the same is true for you, Darvish. I found that Darvish is great, and Darvish gets a lot of strikeouts, so there's a help there. But there are some outings where just Darvish, it's that home run ball that just he's going to give up that home run ball, three home runs in a game, and they'll just torch your ERA. So I'm very, very cautious about ever playing Darvish, and I have no Darvish on on my squad. It's just interesting. It's, it's funny. I I um I gave out uh, that I really liked Alex Wood over Nick Martinez on Monday, and Nick Martinez, who I, I don't think I gave enough credit to what some of his reinvention had been when he went over to Japan. I just thought, okay, this guy was with the Rangers. He, he was a, kind of a rag arm, ERA over five. He pitched really well, only only five innings, which is pretty common for starters. Not Guys aren't going deep in games. Even the, the Kershaw hullabaloo today, I mean, you understand it, right? I mean, the, the guy hardly threw the ball in spring training, and they don't sure, they just don't sure. want to expose him to, um, you know, they, the Dodgers are practically already in the playoffs anyway. But Monday, I thought the Giants, with all their lefty hitters and all their platoons, Nick Martinez, I thought they'd throw a big number up at him. It didn't happen at all. And then Darvish pitches Tuesday, and they basically took batting practice against them. I mean, yeah, I think they knocked him out of the game really early, and Darvish had a, a very crooked line. So it's it just kind of funny that it's yeah. I'm almost like, where was this against Nick Martinez on Monday? And maybe I need to reevaluate Nick Martinez, who you could have maybe some mixed league value. We're always looking. And that's the thing like when you're in these mixed leagues is you're always looking for somebody who can have an ERA in the mid threes and in a whip of, you know, maybe one, two, two or one, two, four, one, two, five. You know, those guys are always going to be playable and they're going to come out of nowhere and we always want to be open-minded to them. But I, I kind of hear you on Darvish. It's He's one of those guys, you catch him on the right day, you wonder how anybody ever hits him. And then you catch him on the wrong day or you catch him on the day he gets hurt. And you're like, oh man, how could I ever roster this guy? I mean, it feels like there's a lot of peak and valley in his game. Yeah, the guys who throw uh, a lot of, get a lot of ground balls, those are safer because they're less prone to these nightmare blow-ups. Even if and isn't have... it funny? You mentioned Syndergaard, right? I mean, we yeah. always think of him as a strikeout pitcher. And not what, did he, what did he do in his first start? One strikeout and like a bushel yeah. of ground balls. It was just a ground ball after ground ball game. He's been he's been a terrible strikeout pitcher even the last year or so that he was healthy. He, mm-hmm. Look look at his – I think he's got like a, less than a 9K per 9 back a couple of years ago. He doesn't strike out anybody anymore, and he's not throing 100 miles an hour. So yeah, That's exactly it. His, his velocity is down. So if his velocity is yeah. down, he has to reinvent himself a little bit so try to get more ground balls because he's not going to just blow people by anymore. But maybe but maybe reduced velocity would mean would speak to him being able to stay healthy. I mean, a lot of people sit – and I'm not a doctor. And, I, again, I don't – you know, I I think I'm a good fantasy player, but I don't. I'm not going to say I understand pitching as well as you know Nick Pollock does, or, or you know, or again I mentioned Eno earlier. My friend Michael Salfino thinks that a lot of, and and I'm paraphrasing here, and Mike would say this much more elegantly than I'm about to, 
But he thinks a lot of the pitching injuries are these guys maxing out and trying to throw 99 and 100 all the time. It's I, I think it's at least plausible to say that maybe if Noah Syndergaard dialed it back a little bit, maybe he'd be a more effective pitcher just because he'd be available. Yeah. Well, look at Jacob DeGrom. <laughs> he won the Cy Young with a, an average fastball six mile an hour less than, than what he currently throws. Yeah, it, just, it breaks uh, my heart that he's hurt because he's yeah. by far my favorite guy. Even if I had no shares, of, I, I think I only have one share of him. But I had a lot of DeGrom last year. I, I came in second in my longtime keeper league with my buddy Scott Gleason where we had Jacob DeGrom. If we had had a healthy DeGrom for even like an extra week or two, it probably would have been the difference in us winning the league, I think. But he's just my favorite. Whenever he pitches and you get Gary Cohen and you get Keith Hernandez and you got Ron Darling, they're terrific. And and DeGrom works quickly and he's always around the plate. And, you know, I, I, there's competitiveness to him. I think he's a very likable guy actually met him at a Yahoo event. We did a fantasy football event a few years ago um, with some of the Mets. So we, we met DeGrom. We met um, Stephen Matz was on the team at the time. Um, we met Dwight Gooden, team ambassador, who was great. Jerry Blevins was in, involved in that draft. Could not have been a nicer guy. Uh, just really a, a good afternoon with, with those Mets guys. And uh, DeGrom is just, if I didn't play fantasy, I'd watch Jacob DeGrom. If I didn't have him on any team, I'd watch him. I, when he's hurt, it's just a it's just a sad day for baseball because he's better than everybody else. When he's pitching, the stadium. When you, I, I've been, I went to I think six or seven of his starts last year. It's just a different atmosphere in the stadium. Every time there's two strikes, the entire stadium's on their feet. It, it's it's un, it's it's unlike. I mean. I was told that it was like that with Dwight Gooden when he first came up. It was like that when Fernando Valenzuela was pitching. It was like that when Pedro, Nolan Ryan was in his prime. When Pedro but went to the Red Sox, it was like that too. It, it's it's just it's just something that that people pay to see. Like when I was younger, I used to pay to go see Randy Johnson. I wanted to see him pitch just because when in his prime, watching Randy Johnson when he was on the Diamondbacks, watching Randy Johnson way back when. I I loved watching him pitch just because it was just. It was people go pay the, pay for admission just to see him pitch. Well, in our home, uh, Degrom is persona non grata. My uh, wife took the kids to spring training a couple years back, and Degrom snubbed my kids. Wouldn't sign any autographs. Wouldn't spend any time with him. Nope, sorry, can't. And uh, of course, Matt Harvey came over and uh, spoke to my kids for a while. So uh, we, we don't really love him in the Cohen household here. But I'm sorry uh, to hear that, though. You know, anybody. <laughs> I remember somebody once was talking about what a great guy Al Leiter was. And they were saying that everybody has a day where if you catch them on the wrong day, you're going to think, oh, what a jerk that person is. And and the comment they made about Leiter is that he just doesn't have days like that, apparently. I've never met Al Leiter. I'd like to believe this is true. But um, maybe what you should have had your kids ask him is ask Jacob DeGrom about you know, running backs and tight ends because you know we were asking him about, you know, hey, who's your sleeper wide receiver? He was very accommodating with that information. But I'm sorry to hear that your experience wasn't uh, favorable. <laughs> yeah. Brandon Nimmo, he spent tons of time and. Nimmo homered twice the last two games. Man, I, I hope he out. stays healthy. If he stays healthy, man, he's going to score 100 runs. He just always gets hurt. He is an on-base machine. He he is such a good player and so underrated and was outside the top 200 in some leagues, outside the top 300 in some leagues. Again, a shout-out to my podcast buddy, Selfina, who was all over Nimmo. He just needs to stay healthy, and that's a really good lineup. I'm really hoping this is the year that Nimmo gets a break from the injury gods, and I know he crowds the plate a little bit. He's got all the armor on and everything. He usually gets hit by a bunch of pitches, but, man, I just want to see what he could do with even, like, 525 at-bats. 
Yeah, I think that Nimmo should actually lead off for the Mets. I don't really particularly love Lindor hitting in the two-hole or up there. He shouldn't be more of a five-hitter for me, uh, but Nimmo should be first. I mean, he's one of the top OBP guys over the mm-hmm. last five years in all of baseball uh, when, he, when he's healthy, as, as you say. Um, let's do a little bit of overreaction theater. Uh, sure. We have a couple of guys who, are, who have been uh, cold, who've started out the year ice cold and Let's, what's our level of concern for them in the very first week? Uh, starting off with Cody Bellinger, who was a little bit risky coming into the year. Is he still hurt? We don't know. Well, Bellinger, uh, before today, had a 143 average. Uh, didn't do much at the plate. He did homer today uh, in a nice uh, win for the Dodgers. What, what is your concern level about Cody Bellinger this year, Scott? That's nice. He threw in a couple of stolen bases earlier in the week, too, but he just looked like a guy with a hole in his swing late last year. And I know he was productive in the playoffs. And then in spring training for whatever, you know, 30 at bats may mean all he did is strike out. I, if I rostered Bellinger, I would hope that maybe he had another home run in him this week. And then I would quietly just say, Hey, I got good outfield depth and see if somebody else wants. I don't, I don't want to be on the Bellinger train. I'm afraid that he's going to be, a high strikeout, high fly ball player who's going to have some major slumps, and I think he could easily wind up hitting around 200 again. I He makes me very nervous, and I did not draft into him this season. Yeah, no barrels uh, before today, no homers. He's striking out 35% strikeout rate so far. Um, I, I, I have no shares of him, and uh, just like you, if, if, you, if you happen to have him and, and he does something, sell, sell, sell is my opinion. You agree, Ruben? I 100% agree, 100%. I mean, I we had no shares of him whatsoever. I actually told you we I don't want any shares of him. And someone else we're going to mention actually started off hot, um, Kristen Yelich. I really didn't want any shares of them because Bellinger, I think he, since his injury, I think he's been overcompensating for because of his injury, for the swing, and his mechanics are out of whack. And because he had that such pronounced uppercut swing, it's either all or nothing. And it just seems like there's a lot more nothing than all. What about Shohei Utani? Now, the ATC risk metrics were all over the, the fact that Otani is a major risk. The inter-SD value for Shohei Otani, 6.4. To give you context, 3 is about average. So he's double the risk of everybody else. And, of course, a lot of that has to do with regression because he had a fantastic year last year. A lot of it has to do with the fact that he pitches and hits. And, I mean, since Babe Ruth, we really don't have a map for that, how players will respond uh, is he doing too much? Did he just overdo it last year? What's your take on Shohei Otani so far in the season before today, batting 160? He did have two stolen base attempts, one successful, one not. But so far, you know, no walks, striking out over 30% of the time. What's your worry level on Otani? Yeah, and he did lead the majors in caught stealing last year, even though he's a fantastic athlete and a very quick base runner. He hasn't always been the highest percentage person on the basis. I didn't draft into him either. Just the idea that it's not just regression, but it's the fact that he was priced where he needed to keep a healthy share of what he did last year to validate. Not no granted and I don't play exclusively in Yahoo, but in Yahoo leagues, he's actually divided into two separate players. There's the Otani hitter, there's the Otani pitcher. And one thing I don't like about that as far as rostering Otani is that let's like, say you draft Otani the hitter you still have to deal with all the injury risk he brings to the table every time he pitches. And every pitcher is an injury risk to some extent. He's somebody I wasn't going to draft into. I'm not worried about his slump so much. I, I think he'll he'll come out of it. And even, but I also thought 
a perfect realm of possibility range of outcomes for him could have been, say, the player he was in 2019 when he was 286, 343, 505, OPS plus of 121, 18 homers, 12 steals in 106 games. That, that's a good player. That's not the MVP of the league. Just what he did last year, I feel very confident it's going to stand as his outlier season. And when a player has a year like that, and then the marketplace prices them expectantly and expensively the next year, I'm just almost always going to reflexively be out on that type of player. Yeah. Ruvain, are you worried? I'm not worried at all. I just feel, I just think exactly what Scott said. There's, because of the recency bias, his price is way too high, which is why we didn't get any shares of him. He's just too good of a talent. He's he's done this for a couple of years. It's not like he only did this for one year. He did it before he got hurt. He did it after he got hurt. So I'm not really concerned that his this is going to carry on throughout the course of the season. And just imagine, then he's not hitting right now, and Mike Trout's batting 200 also. So is, there's nothing really going on there either. So. Both of those guys, they, it, once they turn it around, that Angel team will actually have some sort of offense, although they're they're batting Matt Duffy clean up a couple of times, which I don't really get. Um, but I, I think Otani will turn around just because he has a track record, just like I think Mike Trout will turn around because he has a track record. I mean, how can you... It, it, it's not like you're going to drop them. Are you going to bench them? You can't bench these guys because they can turn around in a day where you can hit two home runs, three home runs in a game, and then you're and then you and you miss that whole week, and then you're you know you're missing out on the on the real Shohei Otani. Yeah, there's nothing to do with the fact that you've bought him at an inflated price right now. The only thing I'd say is that if you can somehow trade for equal value, if your team has a very large aggregate risk component and you want to de-risk a little bit, I don't think people are giving any discount or premium than they did before. I think he's being priced now the same as he did three weeks ago. If you want to de-risk, now's a fine opportunity. The longer he's in a slump, the harder it is to do that. So if you want to de-risk, you should do that. But I think you can expect him to bounce back to being a very productive player. Um, how about Marcus Semyon starting out the season batting 091? Oof, anytime you're batting uh, half, less than half of the Mendoza line, it's pretty bad. Uh, new situation for him. He's no longer in Toronto. Um, does anything concern you about Semyon, or this is just first week jitters? I mean, the fact that he went from Oakland to Toronto and, and hit the ground running and had a monster season. And again, when we're talking about the difference maybe between a Semyon and an Otani, because somebody may say, hey, wait a minute, Marcus Simeon just had the best season he's ever going to have. I mean, he had 40, he's never going to hit 45 home runs again. He's he's never going to, you know, 45 home runs, 15 steals. He's only caught once. Well, I say, well, what the season he had in 2019 in Oakland in a much worse hitting environment, you had a higher average, you had a higher OBP. He had 33 home runs. He scored more runs in that season. I'm a Simeon guy. I, I thought that the market didn't go crazy with what he did. I think they actually went into the draft season very trepidantly thinking, okay, I don't want to be the sucker who believes that Marcus Simeon is a 45 home run hitter. Now, I don't think anybody really believes that. In fact, I think he could easily just go back to being like a 25 or 30 home run guy or something like that. But he's earned, he's still young enough and has enough of a consistent track record. And he's done it on some of these Oakland teams that, that had okay lineups, but maybe not the greatest lineup. We know Oakland is a horrible park to hit in. And I also, I'll admit that I have a kind of a soft spot for Simeon because when he came up first with the White Sox and he went to Oakland, he used to be a very poor defensive shortstop and he improved himself to the point that last year, albeit as a second baseman, he won a gold glove. He made himself into a plus defender. And I just believe in his work ethic. I believe in his mental makeup. I think there's just a case of he's, he's had a bad five games. I'm not going to sweat it at all. 
Yeah, and he's not striking out, by the way. He, he's, he's not. His strikeout rate right now is in line with his career. It's a bad BABIP situation. I think this is just small sample size. Don't worry at all. Ruben? I don't worry at all either because if you look at the numbers last year, on May 1st, he had five home runs and he was batting two sixteen. So that means that he's probably a notorious or slow starter because of the shortened spring training. It may take a little bit longer, so he may take maybe till the second or third week in May till we start seeing the real Marcus Simeon. But I'm not overly concerned about him because he's usually a slow starter. What about Charlie Blackman, who's at age 35 now? Now, it's not like the Rockies aren't hitting. The whole team is hitting like crazy right now. But not Charlie Blackman, who's batting about 150 through the first uh, week of the season. Are we concerned about him at all getting going? Because he's more of a batting average guy, uh, and he's striking out 32% right now, which is like double what his, his career has been. Any concerns about old man Charlie Blackman? Well, my concern was that maybe what you were getting was what he did last year. You know, a 270 average is helpful, but the run production wasn't great. He only hit 13 home runs. He basically shut down the running game three years ago. So you can't, you're not getting any, you know, you're getting two or three stolen bases from him. That's about it. And if Colorado's not competitive, I realize they signed Chris Bryant and everything, but you look at that division, the Dodgers look so much better than them. The Padres and the Giants should be better than Colorado. If the Rockies can find a taker for Charlie Blackman, and it, and it could be a team that looks at him as a fourth outfielder or a platoon outfielder or something like that, then it's bye-bye Colorado. I, I thought last year's season, I was willing to, I, I may have a share or two of Blackman where he's like a borderline starter for me, where I thought, okay, he might just be an average help guy. Weeks where they play exclusively at home, I can plug him in. I don't need him. But I would look at last year and hope that, that what you're going to get from him is maybe that 270. I think the days he's got a career 300 average. He's won a batting title before. You know, he's been an MVP contention. I I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary here. That stuff's out the window now. I think I'm just hoping for a guy with a plus average who chips in. I mean, he reminds me of like the end of like Rusty Greer's career where it's like good average, a tiny bit of pop. The run production is kind of average. He steals the occasional base, but there's no upside anymore. And it doesn't feel strange to say Colorado outfielder, no upside. But I think we're in the no upside days of Charlie Blackman. Yeah, no, there's no upside. But I think that he can still be a productive player in terms of, and even even in, with the run production, I think it all depends on where they put him in the lineup. And if he continues to bat roughly third, which he's been doing, then I think he'll get there because I don't think he's going to go to a zero in terms of his batting average. And if you're batting in the middle of a decent lineup, and Rockies are a decent lineup this year, um, I think the run production will be there. So I'm not going to throw in the towel yet for Blackman, especially since they're still believing him and putting him in a good spot. Agreed. And just like just like Marcus Simeon, he was batting 200 on May 1st last year. So he turned around after when May turned the calendar also. So you may be getting the same thing. But if he's still at the same level of batting average, like let's say he's around 2, 210, 220 by the end of May, I think, you know what, he could be dropped in, in most leagues. I, if all you're getting is average and you and you suffered for two months of getting a 200 or, two, or 210 or 220 batting average and he's giving you nothing else – He's droppable, in my opinion. Remember one thing, though, with Colorado, the teeth of that park. And I know we always talk about, you know, the weather hasn't warmed up yet. This is definitely a park and a climate where its course is going to show its teeth eventually, but it's just almost never going to be in April. Yeah. One more overreaction theater person, and this is a different class of player, the prospect, Julio Rodriguez, batting 071 in his first couple of games. 
He's 0 for 3 tonight so far with two strikeouts. Strikeout rate is at 50%. 50% is quite alarming. Um, there's nothing stopping really uh, Seattle, who does have an abundance of outfielders, to say, okay, need a little bit more rust to shake off, need a little bit more seasoning in the minors, um, putting him back there, dropping him way in the order, not counting on him to play every day. Um, how concerned are you? Because uh, since he made the opening day squad, his ADP went up like crazy. People are really believing in him, think he's going to be the everyday player, going to be fantastic, going to go 15-15. I mean, look look, look at the zip projection for him. 15-15, Fangraph depth charts for the rest of the season, 2017, 268 average. I mean, I don't usually bet on rookies like that. And so far, he hasn't done anything to show that. Um, I, I you're not going to cut Julio Rodriguez, but I'm going to bench him if I have him on my roster right now. What 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 are you doing with Julio Rodriguez, and do you believe in him this year, Scott? Well, it just got to the point where I was interested in drafting him, but once the helium went haywire, where the expectation I talked earlier about, say a Suzuki. You know, I think if we and I realize I'm talking apples and oranges. Just Suzuki's a lot older, and he's played at a higher level of baseball, you know, longer than Rodriguez is. And I think everybody thinks Rodriguez will eventually be a great player, but Julio Rodriguez was priced into that top 50, top 60 range when he had the big spring. And I give Seattle credit for saying we, they were a competitive team last year. We know they overachieved in one run games, but they want to be a team that can have designs on the playoffs and they want to take things seriously. And they, they didn't play the manipulation game with Rodriguez. I give them credit for that, but the walks and strikeouts are not where we want them. And I can't I, I can't help but link him and, and Kelnick together because last year Kelnick was the the Ballyhood prospect and the player you're gonna stash. And then when it you know, looked like he was gonna come up, we were all excited and we all watched his first couple of games together. And he never really got it going. I know he had a power surge at the end of the year, but so many of his stats were were horrible. And then we just try to paint a positive picture like, well, okay, you know, it took Mike Trout some time to figure it out. I mean, Kelnick's still just 22. Rodriguez is still just 21. Neither one of these guys is hitting right now. They're both below 100. They're both striking out a lot. And eventually they're going to get Kyle Lewis back. I just think at some point it might be easy for the team to think, okay, maybe we're taking the pressure off Rodriguez or Kelnick by sending them down, by dropping them in the order, by platooning them, by not starting them every day, whatever it is. I think this offense actually has enough depth that it may consider that. So uh, I think Julio Rodriguez is going to be a great player. And I still think Jared Kelnick is going to be a great player, but I'm glad. I think both of them were mispriced into the draft season. Kelnick was, was mispriced. I think a lot of people just doubled down on Kelnick and he, his ADP was still pretty expectant. And once Rodriguez was tearing up spring training, th- once he started going in the fourth, fifth, sixth round of leagues, I'm, I'm just never going to play that way. And, and I mean, I don't have any Rutschman. I don't have any Rodriguez. And if I'm, you know, people are going to beat me to the punch on those guys, I can live with that. Yeah. I just think that the uh, the expectations of, of Julio Rodriguez are just really far-fetched this year. I mean, he he might be great. Look, look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in his first year. He was good. He wasn't the, oh, my God, top 50 player. Um, I think that anybody who has those expectations – I mean, he's not started out fantastic. Bobby Witt has started out a lot better than Julio Rodriguez this year. Uh, I believe a lot more in Bobby Witt for some reason uh, than I do in Julio Rodriguez for this year. Long term, I think Julio Rodriguez is going to be fantastic. But I want to be fair about one thing. I mean, I'm generally not going to pay the premium on rookies, but somebody's going to say, and again, I point to my, my buddy Mike Salfino. He was in on Tatis' rookie year, and he was terrific. Juan Soto 
was outstanding right away. I just think those guys are so much more the exception than the rule. Now, if you land on the right guys, totally, you find, totally. Look in fantasy baseball, if you can identify the outliers, then you're you're going to dominate because it's so important. When you land on a guy like that, you're going to have such advantage over your league. But I'm and I and I realize that some people will say, well. If you always go with the mean projection, you're never going to get those breakouts. You're never going to get those outliers. And, and I understand that. And I, I don't look at that as a hard rule. I don't look at everybody's mean projection as the way I'm always going to view a player. But the way Rodriguez was priced, I think, was a mistake. It, it, it didn't give him any wiggle room at all to struggle. It's like, okay, you're great right away. You mentioned Vladimir Guerrero. His rookie year, he was being drafted ahead of an in-his-prime Anthony Rendon. And I remember just saying, this is crazy. We know Anthony Rendon is great right now. We think Vlad is going to be great someday. And, and, and by the way, if you've been watching him hit rockets tonight, I mean, you know, Vladimir Guerrero is terrific. I mean, he could be the MVP of the American League this year, and nobody would be surprised. And man, what a fun team that is. But to expect what people expected of Guerrero his rookie year, I really think was a mistake. Yeah, I agree. Anything to add to that, Ruvain, about uh, prospects in general or Rodriguez? Yeah, um, uh, Julio Rodriguez, I'm not concerned long-term, short-term. I do expect him to be sent down if he continues this even for another week or so just because he he's he's being pushed into this he had a great spring which is great but a lot of people have great springs and just fizzle out during the start of the season so i think he does need a little bit more seasoning i'm more concerned about jared kalenic i'm really concerned about him because he batted 181 last year he's had one hard hit ball according to Statcast this year one julio already has has had four according to Statcast. so that's something but if you have kalenic he sat today against the lefty. They're playing Dylan Moore over him right now because he's not hitting. It's he's he's turning into a he's not a platoon player. Klenick and Julio Rodriguez is the future of the Mariners. Whether they're good, whether they're bad, they they're gonna have to play him eventually. But I don't think I think Klenick should still be there. I think he should be playing every day. I think he has to he has to go through and just go through and you know learn on the job. But Julio Rodriguez, I don't think he's a hundred percent ready. I think the Mariners. Jump the gun a little bit by bringing him up so early. Is it uh, fair for me as a Met fan to? Uh, I'm not going to say I'm happy that Kellenic is struggling, but not to really. Uh, well, he's struggling. All right, better better for the Met fan. Is that fair for me? <laughs> no, because Edwin Diaz gave a home run to Bryce Harper uh, today. So no, you can't say that. <laughs> you, you you don't see um, Robinson Cano being an All Star this year. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I no. do not. So, no. uh, there you go. Uh, now, on the flip side, let's take a look at a couple of players who have been really hot and to see whether they're legit or not. And I do want to give a little tribute to the ESPN uh, Fantasy Focus Baseball podcast. For those of you who have not heard that uh, that podcast, uh, that was the podcast started by uh, Matthew Berry. Uh, and Nate Rabbits. I mean, when I started following fantasy and listening to podcasts, they were my go-to one. And uh, it just—it was such an entertaining show. Uh, I just loved it, and I got hooked. Uh, I can't believe I'm doing fantasy content right now, but that was really what I listened to when I was quote growing up. And uh, they actually just ended this past week. Uh, ESPN decided not to uh, continue them. Uh, Tristan Cockroft and Eric Carabell were the ones who carried the torch the last couple of years, and they're fantastic. Uh, and really sad to see that show go. Um, and to tribute them, they had a segment called Bonafide or Bonifacio. Uh, is the player bona fide? Is he legit? Or is he Bonifacio uh, playing homage to uh, the guy Emilio Bonifacio who had a, an enormous first week of the season uh, and then just <laughs> became a dud, uh, milking about $170 of fab from yours truly here that year. Uh, so, 
So that's uh, our little homage to that. Uh, any words on that podcast, by the way, Scott? I, I know you, I'm sure you, you've uh, uh, seen, uh, listened to that one many times. Oh, yeah, much respect to the ESPN guys. Um, I, I very briefly did some work for Nate Roberts. He was great to me, FSWA Hall of Famer. I mean, Matthew Berry is the face of fantasy sports, another guy who's been really good to me. And um, much respect to, to Eric and, and Tristan and Stefania Bell. I mean, they, they just have an all-star team over there. And, um, you know, even though I work for Yahoo and, you know, t- basically, you know, they're Coke and we're Pepsi or whatever, but uh, I have nothing but good things to say about those guys. And um, their show, the, the Ravitz, the Ravitz and Barry show, um, I always thought they had great chemistry and the Bonafide or Bonifacio hook is just perfect. It, it's a great joke. And, you know, Emilio Bonifacio was a guy, not only did he have one year where he just came out blazing, but he'd also have like two or three week periods where he'd be, he'd go 13 for 27. He'd steal like eight bases. He'd hit a couple of home runs. I mean, he was kind of like the precursor to Alberto Mondesi, except that people believed less in Bonifacio than they did. Mondesi's kind of a polarizing player, but Bonifacio was always like, you always expected, okay, he's just going to go one for 28 at some point. I don't want to be caught holding the bag when that happens, but uh, again, there's so much talent in that ESPN room, and 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 although you know we're quote unquote competitors, it's it's a very friendly competition. I I think the world of all those guys. Yep, and of course our show here at Beat the Shift is Dr Pepper. If uh, you guys are the Coke and Pepsi, so okay, there you go. <laughs> diet, just, diet, Dr just, Pepper. Diet, Dr Pepper. Remember the Mets RC Cola used to be uh, one of their <laughs> yes. sponsors. Um, again, shout out to my friend Salfino who does a lot of he writes a lot of the blurbs on the back of baseball cards and one of his favorite baseball cards is the i think the 70 or 71 nolan ryan where they show him warming up in the bullpen for the mets and uh and the rc cola logo is in the background yeah it's just like rc cola okay yeah unbelievable all right so first bona fide or bonifacio connor joe of the rockies um my personal opinion is this guy is bona fide uh connor joe was fantastic last year and Look at his component metrics. Everything looks really in line of what he's doing so far. High walk rate, great contact rate, exit velocity, the same. Battle rate, pretty good. Um, he's had a little bit of homer to fly ball luck, which has propped up his numbers for the first week of the season. But look at his look at his plate discipline. O swing, Z swing, they look the same. And O contact rate is actually worse than last year, and he's still doing great. I think that uh, we have a Connor Joe who's – Bonafide player, and I we picked him up in a 10-team league, Ruben and I, this past week. I kind of think that he should be universally owned. Do you agree with that? I'm going to go Bonafide, too, and I'm kicking myself because I looked at him a long time before the season, and, I, and I'm usually pretty open-minded. To, I don't mind guys who are late bloomers. You, know, you think like Whit Merrifield, right, who would, probably would have been a Bonafide Bonifacio case like four or five years ago, and he's turned out to be Bonafide. Sometimes guys aren't prospects and they aren't treated seriously by their organizations and they finally get a chance. You know, I mentioned Nelson Cruz earlier. Again, it's not to expect everybody to be Nelson Cruz or Whit Merrifield, but I think I like Connor Joe's late age for that semi-breakout he had last year, get me off the scent. And I love the walk strikeout rate. Anytime a player is walking and striking out about the even amount, and I realize we're very early in the season, but that's such a good sign. And because of the DH... The Rockies have driven me crazy in the past because they seem to another team that just wants a different lineup every day and all that stuff. But now that there's a DH spot, it just gives him, it gives Joe an easier path into the lineup. 
and inevitably somebody will get hurt or something like that. They'll have to jostle some guys around. I think he's going to get 500 bats. I think they're going to be in a good batting slot. We know, obviously, the park that speaks for itself. He's somebody I missed on. I don't think I have him rostered anywhere, and right now he sure looks bonafide to me. Yeah. What about you, Ravain? What do you think about the guy with two first names? I, I think I think he is bonafide, 100%. Um, his walk rate has gone up every year in the majors that he's been in the majors, and his strikeout rate has gone down every year in the majors. So it shows that he's figuring something out, and there's nothing wrong with figuring it out better late than never. I mean, even look at uh, Mike Yastrzemski. He figured it out also later in his, quote-unquote, later in his career because he was in late late 20s, something like that. This can happen. There's, there's not the question was how long will he be able to have hold it? Will he be able to do it the rest of the year? Will he get playing time? Yes, he's gonna get. He's gonna get playing time, especially if Charlie Blackman can't play the outfield or because he, he's not productive. If he's not DHing, then Connor Joe can play the outfield. So I don't think you know playing time is gonna be an issue for him. I, I think if he keeps his walk rate the way it is and the strikeout rate is trending in the right directions, I think he's a bona fide player. Yeah, and to what what I said earlier, if he's hot now. He's going to get a longer leash, so the longer this goes on, the longer the Rockies going to keep him in the everyday lineup. And before we go on to our next player, time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Well, we mentioned Stephen Kwan earlier in the in the podcast, so that I have to bring up a trivia question about him. I It, it was kind of hard because I really wanted to find something revolving around him just because he's been in the news about not getting a cold, not striking out, not you know, keeping balls in play and just doing great stuff. His OBP so far this year, I'm sorry, his OPS so far this year is great. In the minors, his career in the minors, his OPS was 818, which is pretty good where would that have ranked in the majors last year would it have been the top 20 top 50 top 75 or top 100 ops of 818 as a career in the minors where would that have ranked last year in the on a major league level top 20 yeah uh, yeah I'll, I'll say top 20 it was actually tied with something. It would have been at 49th place in the really? overall rank for OPS last okay. year by Will, by Willie Adamas, who actually, if you look at their progression in the minors, Willie Adamas was in the minors for six years. He only hit 38 home runs and stole 52 bases, but he found ways to get on base. Stephen Kwan, same thing. He was in the minors for only three years, only 15 homers, only 20 stolen bases over those three years, but he gets on base, and he just keeps getting on base. This is like a Brandon Nimmo. If you get on base, you score runs. Runs is a big category. If, if he hits 300, 320, 350, whatever it may be, if he's getting on base and scoring runs, he's so valuable because batting averages have been on the trending downward the last couple of years. If you can get someone like this, this is it can even out a Joey Gallo for you. Maybe I didn't understand the question phrasing because um, – I'm looking at Adamus now, and I and I knew that like an 818 OPS, um, if you look at it under the OPS metric, which is park adjusted, of course, would be above the league average. I mean, he had an OPS plus Adamus did of 119 last year. So my thought was top 20 sounded too high, but I thought that can't be the league average. And I took 50% to be league average. And I thought, well, it has to be higher than that. So I, I it's possible I misunderstood the question. Um, so Stephen Kwan, I mean, the thing about Stephen Kwan is that you're not going to get power. You're not going to really get that much speed. Maybe he'll throw in a half dozen steals. Uh, we're talking about a batting average player only. I'm not sure how helpful that is to your roster. I mean, Luis Arias, to me, 
It's a little bit more safer uh, than Quan in, in getting that kind of stats. Um, you know, I was listening to uh, Derek Van Riper talk about him, and he made the case that, well, Stephen Kwan can either go and be a Michael Brantley type guy, or he can be a David Fletcher type guy. Uh, and the jury's out on that. I kind of think he, David Fletcher comp is decent. So I'm not going to say he's bona fide. Or I'm not going to say he's either. I'd pick Bonifacio more than bona fide. Uh, but I think he's definitely uh, major, pro- majorly productive fantasy. We're talking uh, last two roster spots of of a mixed league, mixed fifteen team league. I, I don't really see him more than that. I, I mean, I I just think this is a ridiculous hot streak that can't be repeated. Do, do you agree with that, Scott? He's a tough call. I slightly side with Bonafide, and and I'll say why. His it's not just that he's walking, he's not striking out. I mean, he just finally had his first strikeout today. And for a long period of time, he didn't have a swing and a miss. I think he's going to end the season with some ridiculous walk strikeout. I mean, he's, he's already up you know, seven to one or eight to one or whatever it is. Any batter who is around even in walks and strikeouts, no matter what else they do, is almost always a good hitter. And I think because of his on-base skills, that's going to park him in that number two lineup slot the whole season which is going to mean at the end of the year he could easily score i think like if he plays a full season and and i I get that there's a little bit of survivor bias built into that because if he played poorly you know he wouldn't stay there the whole season but i could see him scoring 80 85 90 runs just because he might have an on-base percentage around 400 he might hit over 300 and now the problem is you look at his minor league there wasn't a lot of power and he was just kind of the occasional steel guy. So in a full season, you could think, ah, oh, he might hit eight home runs or 10 home runs, maybe. He might steal five or seven bases, something like that. But because the average is going to be plus, and because I think the batting slot will insulate his runs scored, to me, he's like a two-category player. And I don't know. I mean, bat- batting average is one of those things you, we want to massage, right? I mean, we always think of it more with pitchers. Okay, I'm going to play some middle relievers, some non-closing relievers. I got to work on that ERA and whip. Why can't Stephen Kwan be somebody who helps you fix your batting average? If you find yourself middle of the season, it's like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm like ninth in batting average. But look, there's four or five teams just barely ahead of me. If I can just get over those teams, I'd gain like five points. That might make the opening you know, perfect for Stephen Kwan. He's, nobody's as good as he's played right now. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. His stats don't. But because his batting eye is so sharp, because he just doesn't, he spits at borderline pitches, and he's such a good contact rate guy, and he just walked like crazy all during the minors, I think he can easily be a, you know, like a three hundred five, you know, four ten guy right out of the box who maybe scores a lot of runs. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's Luis Arias, but a guy who's batting second, not ninth. Uh, that, to me, that's to me, they're the same player. It's just the situation that they're in. Um, so it's fortunate you know, for him that the the Guardians have such a mediocre roster yeah, that they're right. going to bat. And I'm a little bit frustrated here because I, in in the sense that. I was big on Ahmad Rosario this year because former top prospect or highly touted prospect. And he was 13 for 13 on steals last year. And I always look at a guy like that and think, well, if he was 13 for 13, why can't he be 23 for 25? Why not let him run more? And what's happened with the Quan emergence is they've dropped Rosario into the middle of the lineup. I still think he's going to be useful, but I wanted Rosario to hit second all season. I don't want him to hit fifth all season. And right now it looks like that's way maybe the way it's going to fall. Rosario's batting almost 400 right now, so it's not like he's slouching here. Um, he's For sure. Doing- I think he's an underrated player. I'm curious what you think of him as somebody who came up with a 
a lot of ballyhoo. And then not that he was ever really a stiff, but he, he certainly fell short of what was expected of him, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I definitely think that he has uh, something to his game. He's going to hit with a high average, I think. Uh, and the in, the in, the Guardians uh, do like him, and they're giving him the opportunity to play. To me, you know, hitting fifth, you'll have fewer runs, but you'll have more RBIs. So, uh, to me, it's a wash there. Um, he might get double-digit home runs, too. He's not powerless. Might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking uh, 10, 18, 10, 15, something like that. Is, yeah, is with a 280 average. Yeah, I'd take that. But I, I think I, I think Rosario, the problem is New York got into his head. I think he was a good player, but once he started getting criticized, this is like Gary Sanchez. Leaving New York may be the best things for their careers. Just right. getting out of New York and, and being in a smaller market team, sometimes a player can flourish. Look at the best example, and, I, and I, I, Jeremy Burnitz. Okay. He couldn't play in New York. He went to Milwaukee, did great. He did so great, the Mets signed him back. What did he do when he came back? nothing it's some it's sometimes it's just playing in this market that's why a lot of players don't want to come to new york and a lot of players want to leave new york yeah i wonder what will happen to giancarlo stanton if he ever leaves new york i mean and i mentioned sunny rudely interrupting you but i mentioned sunny gray who you know really never found his stride in new york and then he was very good for the reds and i think he went to a team in minnesota that probably fits the whole idea of okay you know, the, the Twins fans want their team to win, but if you if you play poorly for the Twins, they don't make your life miserable. We're, we're not going to have a like the situation in Philadelphia, right? I mean, what's gone on there the, the last couple of days kind of crazy you know, with, with Bone and everything. But it's great. It's great for baseball. It's it's fun, you know. No storylines. That's what it is. It's storylines. It's keeping people. You know, the, the casual fan. Yes, they they like this type of thing it's, it's, it's the hardcore people they love this stuff we eat this stuff up it's the casual fans that's what they, they grip onto these things they're little storylines that just you know it keeps the season going you know i somebody a friend of mine inside baseball said that when david price was a free agent and that he got all sorts of advice according to this person's source they said that Boston's not the place for you. They're, it's just an incredibly difficult place to play, and God forbid you you know lose three starts in a row, they're just going to be all over you. And and Price is like, oh no, I, I can handle it. You know, it's no big deal. You know, they put a good offer on the table, and Price went to to Boston was miserable. And it's it's a very difficult place to play. And I'm not excusing the way some of the fans treated Price, uh, but I, although at times he had rabbit ears, and you know he he said some stuff to Dennis Eckersley that, that seemed totally. Uh, just crazy to me, you know. I mean, Dennis Eckersley is a guy who's fought through alcoholism. He lived through the Gibson home run. You know, he made it sound like Dennis Eckersley's whole career was charmed and never had like a down cycle. You know, Dennis Eckersley had some pretty lousy things happen to him, and he he fought through them. Uh, I'm not saying that Price was completely in the wrong either, because there was, certainly was a faction of the fan base that didn't treat him fairly. But there's a guy, and I actually thought he might have had a renaissance when he went to the Dodgers, only because in LA you get lost in the shuffle. It's it's Hollywood. Um, people don't live and die with the team the way they do in New York, the way they do in Boston, the way they, they might in some other cities. And I thought maybe Price was going to be a good reclamation project that really hasn't come to roost. But although some people would laugh at this, that say, oh, it's a soft factor and these guys are the best players in baseball and it doesn't matter you know, where they're hitting in the lineup or what city they play for or what their managerial strategy, you know, a type is, a personality type. I, I think that stuff matters. It, it's A lot of times it's hard to know because we're not in, we don't know the players personally, or we're not in the dugout, we're not following them on the road or whatever. But I do think it can certainly be a factor. I mean, again, there's some guys I just don't think 
are cut out to play in certain markets. And um, I wouldn't say there's a lot of players I'd apply that to, but sometimes I will. I, I'm very curious to see what happens with Gary Sanchez, who was like a whipping boy in New York. We know he has defic- uh, defensive deficiencies. I think getting out of New York was a great move for him. Last player to talk about in this category, uh, let's do Tyler McGill, mm-hmm. uh, who's looked absolutely stellar at the Mets, hasn't given up a run yet, no walks yet, strikeout rate over 30%, his fastball velocity was 94 last year, now it's at over 96. CSW up, that's an homage to Alex Fast, who, by the way, just had a baby this week. Congrats to you, Alex Fast. Um, he looks totally legit. Um, Mets opening day starter, I'm going to say he's bona fide. You, you nailed everything I would have said. You know, no yeah. walks, 11 strikeouts, the tick up in velocity. And, man, I, they really needed him to. I mean, with, with um, DeGrom going the DL, with Walker going on the injury list, with Scherzer at least needing to be bumped back a little bit, and he is 37. And I, I know they signed Bassett with high expectations, and he was good in his first start, but he's 33. He's also coming off a you know, fairly significant injury, although he did pitch last year and at least it wasn't arm related, but it was just scary when he got whacked by a batted ball. I, I think Tyler McGill is going to be the guy who's going to save this team's bacon. And it's going to be, I think he's going to be mixedly like 12 team, 15 team viable the whole season. I, I have a couple of shares. I wish I had a lot more. Yeah. We, we, we own him Ruven in almost every single league that we own to Grum. He was our backup plan. Mm, uh, nice. So we far, did, a good did one, a, We right? did it on purpose. We 100% we did it on purpose as an insurance for DeGrom because we knew that McGill would probably p- uh, pitch because in spring training, his velocity was up. You mentioned his fastball was up, it was up almost two and a half miles an hour. His changeup is up five miles an hour. So it's everything. And plus, now he's on a staff that he gets to learn from Scherzer. He's been with uh, DeGrom for, during spring training and during the course of last year and a little bit the year before that. So he's learning from these pitchers. And he, he the way he discussed it, he says he's learning to pitch with his frame. He's a big guy, and he's learning how to pitch. So he's learning how to pitch like a big guy. The problem is whenever there's an uptick in, in velocity, everyone's always concerned about injury. And that's the only thing that I have a little bit concerned about, that he's never done this before, never thrown like this before. Just like the ground, if they've never done something like this before, and now you're doing it over and over and over and repeating it, there's a higher risk of injury there. You can't be concerned about a Mets pitcher being injured, right? Never, no. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I, I don't know why I would be saying that. I have no idea being a Mets fan. Yeah. All right, uh, let's do a couple of bold predictions. It's our first. We were supposed to do this the other week uh, before the season start, but uh, my voice wasn't there. My, my voice is still not back. I can't believe it. It's crazy how these things linger. Uh, let's do a couple of bold predictions. Let's just go around the room here and cite a, either a hitter prediction, a pitcher prediction, or an award prediction, whatever you like. Uh, let's start with you, Scott. What, what do you got for us? Enrique Hernandez or Kiki Hernandez, if you want will lead the American League in runs scored. He had a great playoffs last year. And even though he doesn't have a traditional leadoff man set, uh, they like him in Boston. He's going to bat in front of Devers and in front of Bogarts and in front of J.D. Martinez and Trevor Story. And even after yeah, he did hit a home run today, he hasn't gotten off to the greatest start already. And, and yet he's got five runs as it is. I, mean, I could easily see him not only just scoring 100. I think he might score 115 or 120 runs. And you're not going to get the greatest batting average from him, but whatever, a 245 average doesn't kill you in today's game. He has multiple position eligibility. And the main reason is, I mean, I love my teams to score runs because that means I have players in good lineups. They're probably batting in good lineup slots. I think Kiki Hernandez was a great value. And my bold prediction is he's going to lead the American League in runs scored. 
You know, I'm going to uh, continue with the Red Sox and say Rafael Devers will lead the American League in home runs. I think that Devers' his launch angle looks up noticeably from the past couple of years. Barrel rate is up. Homer to fly ball rate is up. That lineup is great. You got Kike in front of him. Uh, I can actually see Devers hitting 45, 50 home runs and leading the American League. My bold prediction. You know what? I don't don't hate me for saying this. I'm not even sure how bold that is. And the reason I say yeah. that, the reason I say that, and I'm not like you're one of the sharpest guys in the industry. We all know that. You already have a bunch of FSWA hardware, and more I'm sure is on the way. I went into my drafts thinking I want a lot of Devers this year, and I got none of them because every room I was in was fighting here. for him and taking him in front of me and driving me crazy. I, I just think everybody loves this guy, and and what's not to love? I I think he could have a monster year, and and you did throw out some home run numbers that were pretty scary, so that that certainly is bold of you. He's just one of those guys. You talk about like the FOMO list, you know, the fear of missing out. I'm de- dreadfully scared that I'm going to miss out on this monster Devers season, that he could be the MVP of the league. or Although, man, after watching Vladimir Guerrero hit three home runs tonight, he's, he's probably behind Guerrero in the betting market right now. But I think Devers is going to have a humongous season. Yeah. Ruben? Well, since you're talking about home run leaders, I actually think that Sal Perez will repeat as a major wow. league home run leader because I think he's going to stay healthy and he's hitting – He's, he's, I, 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 nothing's changing for him, so I don't think anything's going to change, and I think he's going to lead the majors in home runs again, which is almost impossible for someone to do two years in a row. Um, and I also think that Ronald Acuna will have the most fantasy value for any hitter this year. So I, I think he's going to come back. I know we have him on a couple of teams. Um, that's not why I think he's going to do the have the most fantasy value. I just think that he's going to when he comes back, he's not going to take it easy. I think he's going to push it like he always does. Um, I, the stolen bases will come later in the year, like they always do. So I'm not concerned about that. One other thing I want to mention, though, you mentioned Noah Syndergaard earlier this year. My I have a bold prediction about him. I think he wins. AL Comeback Player of the Year. I think he puts it all together, and I think he he's betting on himself this year on a one-year contract, and I think he ends up being the AL Comeback Player of the Year. NL Comeback Player of the Year, Alex Cobb here. Um, <clears throat> I will go with Joey Bart, Rookie of the Year. I think most people are not focusing on him being the guy. I think Joey Bart is going to uh, somewhat follow in uh, – his mentor Buster Posey's footsteps, um, but I think he's going to really impress people to the point that very possible he could get Rookie of the Year. I think it's going to be hard for Suzuki not to screw that up if he stays healthy. But it would be fun. Yeah, yeah. It'd be fun, and, and we always we never really know, right? Should those guys win? They already have professional experience. The level of play in Japan is very high. It's not exactly the major leagues, but it is very high. This is more maybe heart than head. And I don't really know what Adam Wainwright has done to reinvent himself because, I mean, he was a guy. One of my favorite trivia questions is he's got the most Cy Young shares of a player who's never won the Cy Young Award. He's been second and third a few times. Um, you know, this, some of the other guys in that list, uh, Kurt Schilling's on that list, Garrett Cole's on that list, Nolan Ryan, I think, is sixth on that list. Um, just, uh, Chris Sale has never won the Cy Young Award. It looked like fantasy usefulness was gone in the mid-2010s. ERA started to creep over four, over five, but the last two years he's had great whip. He doesn't walk anybody, really playable ERA. And you ask, well, he's getting lucky. I mean, I know his ERA is better than his FIP or his ERA estimators don't believe in this, but what if St. Louis really has this defense that's good enough to win five gold gloves? I mean, I know the gold glove isn't a perfect way to evaluate defense 
and people will, can have great debates about whether defensive metrics are good or not, or yeah, have we how much have we learned about how to actually quantify defense. But Adam Wainwright's fun to watch, and he has a great rapport. I don't think they should be playing um, pool holes so much, but this last go round probably of Wainwright and, and Yadi Molina, I'm going to watch those guys as much as I can, and maybe it's head over heart. But I think Wainwright is going to be a top five Cy Young guy this year. Yeah, well, Carlos Beltran unfortunately is still uh, oh, the curveball. What uh, a knee buckler, man! I can't hold it yeah. against Beltran. That was a nasty <laughs> pitch. Yeah, sadly, uh, <laughs> I'm going to throw. And, and out- by the way, by the way, we talk about sometimes in sports like great plays that get forgotten because of the way games ended. That catch, Andy Chavez. I mean, that's one oh, of the yeah. best catches I've ever seen. Oh, absolutely, with without a doubt, because of its importance. Also, you know, sure. the, game seven of an NLCS for sure. Game seven, yeah, in a tie yeah. game, in a tie game, what like a grab. The seventh or eighth what, what, inning. Man, like, what a grab that was! I was at game six. Game six was rock, and I've never seen Shea Stadium rock that much. Yeah, they were the, still in Shea then. That's right. They were that's in Shea, right. and I was in the Loge section, and there was the overhang over me, and the whole ceiling was shaking. It, it was scary for a point where you're like, oh, my God, is the whole stadium going to crash? It was so rock. I never – I've been to maybe, I think, 18 stadiums, but Shea's one I never got to. Just oh. give, give me like a 30-second or 60-second overview of Shea Stadium. When you get to the upper deck, you feel like you're falling onto the field. It was very steep. The upper deck was very steep. It seemed like there were always yellow jacks there. Also, you're always chased by flies and bees. It was a right. great stadium. Um, but down below, it was nice. Down below on the field level, loge level was fine. But when you started getting higher up, it was you had to hold on tight and, and pray you got to your seat okay. Was it as bad as they say with the planes? Was it just constantly planes flying overhead? Yes. It's still there. It's, I yeah. mean, still, it's the still does spot. It. City Field yeah. still has sure. it. Yes. The the thing I remember most is the crisscross ramps when you were walking out of the stadium. Uh, going in the stadium, there's escalators, but going out, you would just basically walk in in a crisscross ramp. Like you would go one way, but there would be ramps going the other way, and just a very long winding. You would literally just walk around the stadium as you're going down. And after a Mets game, chanting "Let's go Mets" with everyone walking down that very long path was just something I, I always remember. It was a Phenomenal experience, especially in a game that mattered late in the season, a game against the Yankees late, a game in the playoffs. Just let's go Mets as you're walking straight the whole way, and it was just winding all the way around the stadium. It was fantastic. You know, even though I've never been to Shea, I have been to one game at City Field, but I do feel like I have some sort of relationship with the team for two reasons. One, I'm a Red Sox fan. I grew up in New England. So, of course, you know the 86 Mets and Red Sox will forever be linked. And also when I was becoming a, a, just a huge sports fan growing up and I got my driver's license and all that, a lot of times this is before, you know, the Major League Baseball Extra Innings Package or MLB.com or you know, all the serious you know, satellite radio stuff. I would go out in my car on a clear night and listen to Gary Cohen and Bob Murphy do the Mets game or listen, man, to Harry Callis do the Phillies. He, I mean, these guys are... Hall of Fame broadcasters. You could pick up John Miller doing the Orioles and the Baltimore feed. If you were really, really lucky, maybe you could get a Detroit game or a St. Louis game or something like that. But um, I would I would listen to these games on the radio, uh, the Yankees games, you know. But I, the, usually my go-to were, was the FAN call at the time. Cohen was a radio guy. Oh yeah, and, and Gary Cohen's one of those guys. He's great at everything. You listen to him do college basketball. He's awesome. He does Olympic hockey. He's fantastic. I think he's ter- terrific. Obviously on SNY, but 
and Harry Callis, I don't know if you guys, uh, if your lives intersected with him, he was so, so good. And, you know, he, of course, was doing the NFL films work. He was doing voiceover work for commercials. I, I still remember the day Harry Callis died right at the beginning of, of a season. I think it might have been on opening day. And I, I felt like I lost an uncle I never met because I, I just admired him so much. You know that Gary Cohn is my uncle, by the way. I didn't. Is that true? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> well, I, the name is the same, and you're both smart yeah. guys, so I, I don't know. It seemed to make sense. I remember when, when I was younger going to camp, we used to go to Hershey Park. We have an overnight. So you'd be, I get the stations from Philly and from New York. Oh, I used yeah. to hear Gary Cohen and Bob Murphy, and I heard Harry Callis the same night. It was a crazy. That's one night I actually look forward to. So good. I One time I heard Harry Callis call the last two or three innings of a Tommy Green no-hitter. And I'm just, I'm just driving on the highway. I'm just driving the drive in the area where the reception was great. I'm probably just putting all this wear and tear on my car and wasting gas. Cause oh, I yeah. just, and I didn't even ever, I, I don't even know if I was playing, if I had Tommy Green on a fantasy league or something, or, you know, I didn't have a bet on the game. I just wanted to listen to Harry Callis. And when people say things like, oh, you don't tune into a game for the announcers. I, you know what? The last four or five years of Vince Kelly's career, I would just put on the Dodger game. And it didn't matter if I had any fantasy stake or otherwise interest in that game. I just wanted to listen to Vin Scully. And I, I'm not a Mets fan. I, I I probably have some fantasy interest in the Mets because I have so many teams, but I just like listening to those three guys. They, they get along so well. They have such great chemistry. I know they don't always work together. Sometimes it's a two-man booth, but I would rather listen to a Met game and hear Cohen and, and Keith and, and Ron talk to each other than I would maybe a, a game where one of my guys was pitching, but I didn't like the announcing crew as much. For, for sure, for sure. Uh, they definitely wanted the best, and oh yeah, when when they were on AM uh, six sixty, uh, the the Mets, you can hear them up and down the seaboard, the uh, eastern seaboard. I, I very was, strong signal. Yeah, you drive to Virginia, I hear them crisp and clear on a clear night. Let's go um, Mets, F A N D N. Oh yeah, I remember that? I remember that well. Uh, any last uh, uh predictions to throw out there? Um, I'll I'll do uh Pablo Lopez is uh the best pitcher on the Marlins. Get some Cy Young votes. Uh, Pablo Lopez had a three ERA last year and a 28% strikeout rate, both better than Sandy Alcantara that everybody was drafting in the second or third round. I like Pablo. That. Yeah. I had Devers winning the AL MVP. Um, Suzuki's a pretty obvious pick, I think, as, as the rookie of the year. You guys are probably going to throw some knives at me for this one. I have the Phillies. My bold predictions are going to have a losing record that I'm just petrified of that defense. And how about Jordan Romano? gets not only leads the major leagues and saves i'm gonna say jordan romano gets 50 saves very very possible very possible we, we were all over him the entire uh he's my guy he's he was my b plus closer you know who could go into the first tier like the year kirby yates did that or blake trine and i was hoping oh, it's a week whatever we all knew jordan romano was good but i was hoping he was the second tier closer who could crash into the first tier so far so good and he he was he was like the least expensive of the top closers, so that that's that's the right. guy we target in almost all. Love to shop in that um, in that pocket. That's always a goal of mine. Um, I think Kershaw is going to end up in the top five in the Cy Young Award, mm. uh, and this is before he pitched today. Before he almost threw in a no hitter, a perfect game in 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 April. I think he's going to do really well, and this is really out there. But I think there, there's going to be a way because I like the Reds pitching staff, and I just like the A's. But one of those two teams are still going to be relevant at the end of August, even though they traded away all their teams. That Central Division, the Reds have some good starting pitchers. You never know. And the A's, Billy Bean, that organization, they know what they're doing. So they always seem to be relevant. So I think both of the, one of those two teams are still going to be relevant in the playoff race come the end of August. 
is bald. I, I just worry about how, how Oakland has just given away so many talented guys. And it's after like Tony Kemp, who actually I, I do think is a kind of an underutilized fantasy asset. I know Seth Brown's off to a good start, but they have such a pedestrian offense and th- their pitching staff. I, I, I'm worried that anybody who pitches well is going to get traded. Yeah, that's that's the curse for them, right? Um, I'll go really bold and say the Rockies make the playoffs. By the way, that lineup is phenomenal. Uh, like that, you just said it's very bold. Would yeah. you? Is there a Rockies pitcher that you would? I guess Bard doesn't count because he might get saves. Is there a Rockies starting pitcher that you would actively roster? In points leagues, Herman Marquez easily. Uh, okay. He's so undervalued. So many like, innings. He pitches so many innings. Yeah, it's the innings and and it just uh, yeah, it's just the innings really. Uh, but. <sighs> I can't trust anybody uh, in Roto, especially in a shallow league. Um, we're talking mono league only for those pitchers. It would have been John Gray if he was still in the team, but he's no longer there. Um, now, we, we, um, the show has run a little bit long, but we should do some waiver wire pickups for this week. Pitcher preview as we're in the middle of season end, waiver wire is now a big part of the game this year as it has been the past couple of years. Scott, any uh, waiver wire? We'll do them all together. Any waiver wire picks or pitchers, pitcher preview for uh, this week that you're interested in picking up? Uh, I'll give you three quick angles. Uh, Gavin Lux is kind of the obvious pickup. Got a job when A.G. Pollock was traded. I think he eventually may get a different lineup slot. Three positions of eligibility in Yahoo, and he's only owned in about a third of Yahoo leagues right now. Tony Kemp in deeper leagues is one of my favorite, like first guys off the bench, leadoff hitter. In Oakland, good on-base percentage. I think in a full season, he could project to be double-digit home runs and steals and two positions of eligibility. He's just 3% rostered in Yahoo. What I want you guys to do, everybody listening in about a week or so, give or take, five days, 10 days, 15 days, go to your waiver wire, look at relievers, okay? And I realize that everybody who gets saves is generally chased after aggressively, but look at all the relievers with good walk to strikeout rates, Okay. Think about guys like Nick Anderson. Think about guys like Devin Williams, Chad Green, Jonathan Loisaga, guys who have emerged in previous seasons who maybe you picked up for a zero bid or maybe you picked up at the lowest point of entry. They're going to be relievers that you know nothing about right now. And you're going to say, oh, man, who's this guy in the Rangers with one walk and 13 strikeouts? Just pick up a couple of those guys because, man, you can get in on them cheaply and you don't know where the Nick, Nick Anderson's coming from or the next Devin Williams is coming from. Nobody thought these guys, anything of these guys when they popped. And a lot of times a guy who's a failed starter or a guy who you know maybe had Tommy John or whatever it is, you know, maybe Nick Martinez, I, he's a starting pitcher. Maybe he's reinvented himself in Japan. Walks and strikeouts are your friend. In a couple of weeks, I want you to grind that leaderboard and see if you can pick up some guys at the absolute minimum bid. You'll, you can find a couple of gems that way. Yeah, that is absolutely the best advice. Uh, follow that 100%. Garrett Whitlock last year, same thing. Yes. Just uh, And he gave you volume also. Sure uh, did. And, I mean, here's the thing. You know, we tell people middle relievers are valuable, but don't waste a dollar on them in the draft. And you never know who's going to be the K to BB person in the year. But you wait two weeks, just sort and look at those ratios and that'll give you exactly who uh, who you should be looking at That's for it. middle relief. You don't Why have pay- to get them in the draft. Although I feel stupid because I have a couple of Chad Green shares, but you you don't have to you don't have to pay. You can get these guys at the lowest point of entry, which is the beauty of it. All right. Anyways, uh, let's go on. Ruvain, how, how about you? Uh, waiver wire or pitcher to pick? Well, talking about the relievers, I actually have a reliever I'm going to mention. That's Spencer Strider of the Braves. He throws gas, and he's K per nine right now is at thirteen and a half. 
His walks are a little high also, but I know he's only now only owned in 18% of CBS leagues. Um, he's a guy that if you don't like really or any love any of the two-star pitchers that are coming up, he's a guy if you've been in there, you'll get a, a lot of strikeouts and ERA, which should be okay. Um, another guy I want to mention is Kyle Farmer, Reds. He's eligible in every basically every single position in the infield, first, second, third, short. He's eligible everywhere. He's batting 375 right now, and he steals. So just let's see if you need stolen bases, you want to try to get them early. This is the guy to get. He's only 14% owned in CBS, and he's great to have on your bench if you need in or if you have any injuries. One other pitcher I want to mention, mentioned, it's a Colorado pitcher, Austin Gomber. This is the time to get him. He does strike out people. He may not be a great two-star pitcher, but he is playing the Cubs this coming week. Um, you're going to get some strikeouts, and if you're not going to get him, pick any pitcher who's playing the Baltimore Orioles because they already lead the league in strikeouts. They had 58 strikeouts already in not even a full week. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Taylor Hearn. Uh, looked pretty good this week. Uh, he struck out six in only four innings in his first outing. Um, gave up a lot of hits, but a lot of strikeouts along the way, and not really the walks. It's uh, I think it's more like a Babbitt fluky thing. I think he's somebody to be very interesting to look at. He's playing Oakland this week, so that's an interesting play right now. Cole Irvin playing Baltimore and Texas at home. I don't like streaming this early, but I think he could be a, gu- a good guy in the long term anyways. Um, so uh, he's a guy to look at, Cole Irvin. Uh, closer, Tanner Rainey. Um, I think he is the closer, and he's only 25% owned on CBS. I, I know Washington not going to be a great team, but they could have a lot of save situations as they might play some some close games. That's more interesting than, let's say, Jorge Lopez, uh, the guy on the Orioles who's less than 10% owned on CBS. I'll take a stab at Tanner Rainey. A couple hitters just to look at. Jimon Choi looks good so far. A homer, two doubles. He's actually batting 615 to start. I know the Rays platoon, but Jimon Choi is interesting. Um, Luis Arias. He's a guy who plays second, third, and outfield, batting average stud. So far, take a look at him. And the guy I'm, I'm most interested in is uh, Jerkson Profar. Uh, also, first base, second base, outfield eligible. Right now is triple slashers, 357, 471, 786 with two homers and seven RBIs. He's a guy that they'll find playing time, especially with Tatis out. Former number one prospect in baseball. Uh, I think Profar could be an interesting addition. Why scramble for somebody else? He'll give you some production um, consistently. And this is for deeper mixed leagues, of course. All right. Um, no time for a mailbag this week. But, uh, Ruvain, quick injury update. Sure, let's throw a couple guys out there. Luis Patino was placed on the 60-day IL with a left oblique strain. So you're not going to see him until at least June. Alex Kirilov was added to the Twins IL with a recurrence of his right wrist injury that he had last year. Something to watch out for. Danny Jansen was placed on the IL for the Blue Jays with an oblique issue. That means that Alejandro Kirk will get more playing time behind the plate, which could free up some time for Ramiel Tapia. So if you want another guy who steals and plays the outfield, he may get more playing time. Lucas Giolito is on the IL with a left abdominal strain. He feels better already, and the White Sox haven't shut him down from throwing, so he may only get a minimum stay on the IL. Another White Sox pitcher, Lance Lynn, he has already started the throwing program, but you shouldn't really start... Uh, looking to activate him until around June because he's not going to be ready till end of May, beginning of June. Breaking news, John Means left his start today with forearm tightness. 
something to watch for. I know me and you are. We have a lot of his shares. Also, Taiwan Walker has aisle, he was on the aisle with shoulder bursitis. He's going to go back in the minors and he has a couple starts in the minors to just to build up because at the end of spring training, he wasn't able to build up his full innings load. So he will do that in, in, the, in the minors and hopefully he'll be back probably around mid-May. All right. Thanks for that. Once again, uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, and, you know, congrats again for uh, FSWA Hall of Fame. That's just an incredible honor and, and very well-deserved. Anybody who's listened to Scott talk over the years, just so thoughtful, eloquent, and always has a, a point of view that uh, I, I almost always agree with. And if I don't agree with, um, I, I love the explanation that you give to counter it. Uh, so uh, kudos, to, kudos to that, and thanks for joining the show. Well, I really appreciate the kind words and um, you know, much respect to the work that you guys are doing. Uh, you, you've become, this has become one of the go-to podcasts in the industry and you, you guys have the, the plaudits to, to point to. And, you know, this is so much, there's so many you know, things that people we've talked about. We talked about all those ESPN guys. You mentioned DVR. I was talking about Eno earlier. Um, Alex Fast. Yeah, congratulations on the new baby, Alex. It's just, it's a golden age, I think, in in fantasy, they're just smart people coming in all the time. And I think it just makes it more exciting. Um, it's a, a more inclusive industry, I think, now. There's so many great female analysts who, who are just terrific, um, who, who I read every day. And um, I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. It's really fun to talk to you guys. And uh, thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Totally agree. Uh, you can follow Scott at Scott underscore Pianowski on the Twitter machine. And, of course, you can read his stuff over at Yahoo Sports. Uh, Ruvain, what about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come, next guy up, and how long the player will be out for. You can also catch my weekly injury article on Rotoballer every Saturday morning so that you're able to prepare for your fab that weekend. And I'm Ariel Cohen. I write over at Fangraphs, Rotographs. Uh, I write over at Sportsline on occasion and uh, Rotoballer. Do the projections, the ATC projections. Final ones are out there. Check it for your final time. Possibly working on a rest of season ATC. Let's let let's see what happens with that. But uh, uh, it was a great. It was a very very challenging ATC season because it was such a rush after the lockout was finally over. Things just coming in, free agents and things moving around. So. Uh, thank you for everyone who has followed and for bearing with me. And, of course, you can f- follow me on Twitter at ATCNY and listen to me every here, every week this, uh, this season on the Beat the Shift podcast over here. Well, again, thanks so much for Scott Pianowski for joining the show. Hopefully I'll have my full voice back on our next show. Thank you for bearing with me today, and thank you for listening. Thanks again, Ruvain, for being on the show as always. And from all of us here at the Beat the Shift podcast, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.